All right. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's flip over to uh, <clears throat> 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. And this all stems from what we've been doing in Acts and, and just talking about, uh, if you remember, two weeks ago, we looked at Paul and the 12 uh, brethren that Paul meets. Uh, we noted the fact that uh, they're, they were called brethren, they're called believers, and they were called disciples. But when he talks to them, he says, when you were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And then he proceeds to tell them who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit's doing in lives, baptizes them, and then the Holy Spirit uh, becomes uh, essentially more part of their life, to summarize it. (laughs) Then last week we looked at how really who the Holy Spirit is, the idea of the Trinity, why we subscribe to the idea of the Trinity, uh, from Genesis into Deuteronomy into the New Testament, this idea of uh, the triune God, that you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those expressions, the three persons and one God, as it were, and how really what the Spirit's doing, that he's, uh, the, the, we looked at John 14, John 16, in different places where it talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin before we were believers, that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to us, that, that it's not just always our conscience, but it's a faithful God saying, you, don't, you know, that'll destroy you, you don't want to do that, you know, uh, Repent, which has kind of become a bad word in our society, but it really just means to, to turn around and come back to me. Um, the fact that the Holy Spirit is convicting our own hearts oftentimes and saying, you know, why did you say that? Why did you act that way? Why did you treat that person that way? Why are you involved in this? You know, that stuff like that. Why are you watching that? Or, you know, just different ways that we feel conviction in our own hearts. And then after that, uh, we have the Holy Spirit's encouragement. We have the Holy Spirit's giftings and all the different ministries that we looked at last week that the Holy Spirit is involved in and bringing us into. And then this week, as I was looking, and I think I I said a couple times that we'll look at the manifestations and the gifts uh, individually this week, um, but we're actually not going to do that. We'll do that next week, maybe. Uh, Because as I was getting prepared and, and reading through it and praying through it, uh, there was something I think that uh, I believe that for us and for Christians in general is really important before we even get into the manifestations of the Spirit, or how the Spirit can work through us. And that is really the heart of the Spirit and the heart of God and, and how the, the Spirit wants us to interact and really the goal of all uh, manifestations of His giftings. Does that make sense? That there is a way and an uh, ideal that God has in the gifting and in the, uh, the outpouring, in the, I guess, the action of his Holy Spirit. And it's by knowing who God is and what he's doing, which we talked about the last couple of weeks, and it's by knowing what he has called us to that we can then walk better or more effectively in our own personal gifts that God has given us to help people with the Holy Spirit, or I should say with, with, to help people with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I want to start with this particular passage that Peter, uh, he gives us, I think, a backdrop for how we're to interact with one another and how we're to use our giftings, regardless of what they are, as just kind of a level playing field for how uh, God wants to move in lives. If you don't mind, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I I probably say this too much, but this is truly one of my favorite passages because it just makes life so much more simple. But he says there in, in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold or varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter writing, he's writing to people who have been dispersed, Christians who are being dispersed and are being persecuted and going through difficulty. And he makes this, this statement. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. So it's been 2,000 years of the end. <laughs> It's a, probably a sermon for a different time, but it's a, it's a long end or a long hand, one of the two. But the point being, he's referring to the imminent return of Christ. It could happen any time that the end is at hand. And then he gives us some instruction based on that. And he says, be self-controlled 
and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, first I want to start with sober, work backwards. Sober is not somber. Uh, and sometimes we get that a little bit mixed up in our minds, that, that, that sober means that I'm Eeyore, and everything is terrible, and the, the world is terrible, and, and that everything is just, I just kind of walk around with this gloom and doom, and, and that's being sober. No, that's being somber. Sober is just the idea that you might think. It's the opposite of being impaired or, or, or being diluted or something like that. It's the idea of clear thinking. In thinking that's not affected by whether it be substances or attitudes or whatever, it's sober-mindedness. It's being willing to evaluate and to consider. And so he says we ought to be those that were self-controlled. In other words, we... we and, and you might remember self-control is also part of the fruit of the Spirit, but we're those that heed the Spirit of God and, and limit ourselves based on what God is calling us to. And then on top of that, we're to be sober, to think clearly about what that means. And that's not necessarily where we're going to camp today, but that's the idea there. And he says, for the sake of prayers. Now, I think that most of us, at least intellectually, would agree that prayer is very important. Sometimes I think, for me personally, I can forget that, and you know, we're rolling, we're doing our thing, and, and then it's like, oh yeah, God says that prayer is this powerful thing, and we can get, or I can get all wound up about something, or all angry, or all worried, or whatever it might be, and I realize that it's been a long time, and I haven't even prayed about it, I haven't given it to the Lord, I haven't cast my cares on Him, I haven't made requests on Him, and all these things. So prayer seems to be a very preeminent portion, or at least it's supposed to be, of the Christian life. And I'm not here to measure that in anybody's life. But it's noteworthy that he says, look, it's the end. And then he mentions prayer. But then in verse 8, he says, above all. So here's this preeminent thing called prayer. That if we polled the church, if, if, if we went through and we said, hey, you know, here's a yes or no question. Is, is, is prayer really important or is it not? I think all of us would probably, out of just either habit or actual belief, like, yes, prayer is important. He says, above that, above all, above everything else that you do, above all of your Bible study, above all of your prayer life, above all of the good works that you have lined up, whatever. He says, above it all, he says, make sure that you keep loving one another. This is the present active uh, tense for this verb, to love. And it means to make sure that you keep continually loving one another. And here he says, in earnest. Now, this is an important idea because it's the foundation for all of our interactions. It's the foundation in which God interacts with us. It's important for the foundation of how Christ interacted with the world. And it's the foundation of how we interact for one another, to love one another. And notice, it's, it's to continually keep loving one another. And the, you know, the idea here is that it's often and earnestly, it can be, it can be stopped. It's a, it's a very um, proactive event. Does that make sense? It's not just like some sort of a passive thing. But sometimes in a conversation, you have to continue to remind yourself, no, I love this person. Jesus loves this person. To continue to remind yourself, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, to stray in a place in my mind where I begin to entertain thoughts that are not loving. Now, not to, to beat a dead horse here, we talk about it a lot probably, but what does he mean to love? It's agape. There's four different words in Greek for love, and, and many of them are, they're all used in the Bible at one time or another, whether it's eros, would be like erotic love, or it's phileo, like Philadelphia, it would be brotherly love. You know, so there's different, this is agape, which is God's love. And, and that, in a sense, that should be a hint already how hard that is to do. Because it's not, our, we're, we're capable of, Phileo, Peter confessed that to Jesus. It doesn't come through in our English. But when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you agape love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. In other words, you know I'm fond of you, like a brother. So there's, there's different tenses. We're in our souls, in our fallenness, we're able to be fond of people. You've experienced that, I'm sure. And we're able to experience eros and all of that. But agape love is a moral love. It can have feelings associated with it, but it's not predicated upon feelings. Fondness is a feeling. I feel fond about you, or you feel fond about someone. And you, you might have noticed this, but fondness can come and go with those that you love the most sometimes. But agape is a true moral love. It is God's love which says, I look at this person, and I always, regardless of who they are, desire the best outcome for them. 
See, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The point there is that he loved every single human. It doesn't matter if it was a child molester or if it was Mother Teresa. He loves every single human. He morally desires the absolute best for every single human. Now, we can get into love and justice, and that would be a different teaching. But because God loves humans, he loves justice. Because if you don't have justice in the earth, then you can't truly say you love something. If I say I love my daughters and then farm them out to terrible men, do I love my daughters? Absolutely not. I can feel as fond as I want about them, but I don't love them. So God says, I morally love you. And then Peter comes along and he says, because the end is here, we're called above everything else we do, above making sure everybody's doing anything right, above making sure that we pray enough, making sure whatever, that we morally look at one another, actively saying in our hearts, in our minds, I desire the best for you. This is important because every single action of the Holy Spirit, this is the heart of God. So every time a gifting of the Spirit comes up or there's an opportunity to exercise one of the gifts that God has given you or me, it must come through this vein. He goes on, and, and, and I should say not he, Peter doesn't, but, but Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he tells, he tells us, he says, look, don't do anything from vainglory or selfishness. But he says, but look at one another as more excellent or esteem one another as more excellent or more valuable than yourself. Now, this is completely countercultural. This idea of desiring the best for someone else, that is the, the idea that I could humble myself before someone else, the idea that Christ's heart for me and in my ministry and my exercise is to always benefit others. Now, obviously, you will benefit from walking with Jesus. But every time the Holy Spirit is going to move in my heart to be part of something he's doing, utilizing the gifts that he's given me or you, then it's going to be, it needs to be, and it has to be, if it's going to be completely effectual, that motivation of love. And the reason I bring that up is because in my experience, uh, many times, and maybe this is your experience too, we can do things or act out things where our motivation is not love. Or we can, we can think that the Holy Spirit is moving us to do something, but the end of it was not actually love or care, but that it was something personal. It's interesting that Paul says, don't, think, don't do anything out of a selfish motive. Maybe you've seen it. I've definitely seen it. Maybe we've done it. Where we exercised our gifts for a personal reason. And you know how that manifests itself? It's when us or someone else says something like, I have a word of prophecy and I need to give it right now. And so all of us have to hear it. And, and that person operates in this place of urgency, this place of like, I have to get this out. And all of a sudden it's me, me, me. With no even idea about where everybody else is at. And it, and it can be where I have the spiritual gifting of prophecy or tongues. Typically it happens with tongues. I'm not picking on tongues. We'll talk about tongues possibly next week. But that's typically where it comes out. Someone who does speak in tongues says, I have, a, I have a tongue and I need to get it right now. And, you, and we're all like, oh, okay, well, we're in the middle of worship. We're worshiping the Lord and you want to just bring us all to look at you. That may not be their ultimate attention, but just acting out in an inappropriate way in an inappropriate time. And then we're all supposed to go, that's really great. Whereas if the Holy Spirit is leading and doing things, it's not going to be this interrupting chaos type of thing. There's going to be an order to it. And so when we're interacting in people's lives and when we're trying to help people, we're to be those that we're esteeming people as more excellent than ourselves, that we're loving them in all earnest, and that's our motivation, and then we're operating in that foundation. Does that make sense? Now it's interesting too because he says when that happens... When you love one another earnestly, love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, every legalist in here, including myself as a closet legalist, goes, <gasps> covered sin? We can't cover sin. We expose sin. That is the cry of our entire society. I don't care what news network you watch. 
Our entire society is predicated on exposing and canceling. You did this. You said this. We ferreted this text out. We got this email, and we just broadcast it constantly on every network. Guess what? Everybody is a sinner. I'm not validating what people do. But we don't need to sneak into people's emails and texts to know that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's something really important. Agape love, when it says that it covers sin, it's not saying that agape love observes and then says, hey, it's cool. Hey, you're beating your wife? That's cool. Sometimes I get mad too. Oh, hey, you're abusing your children? Oh, that's cool. You know what? You probably shouldn't do that, but I understand. That's not agape love. That's not, that's not what we're talking about when we're covering sin. Agape love covers sin because when someone morally desires the best for someone else and chooses to do that as a lifestyle, when someone is involved in sin, it's not that you don't address it and you bury it. It's that you approach it in a different manner, don't you? Has anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, have you ever addressed or talked to someone about their sin just because it annoyed you? Or you morally judged it and didn't like it? That's what our society does all the time. Whether it's CNN or Fox News, when they're exposing people's sin, is their goal for restoration? No. It's political agenda. Is their goal to see true justice? No. It's to raise up and smash down. So agape love, when sin is exposed, agape love sees the person, loves the person, Prays through and finds a way using the giftings and the leading of the Holy Spirit because the goal will always be restoration with God. The Holy Spirit is never going to do something and the heart of God is never going to do something that's goal is not to restore relationship. That's what Satan does. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. And the crazy thing about us is that when we're not operating in that love, when our heart isn't above all to love my brethren, we can do Satan's work. And we can be really good at it as human beings. We can steal and kill and destroy. And we can do that with murmuring or gossiping or trashing or just coming to someone that we're just annoyed by their sin and just laying into them for what they're doing. Whereas the Holy Spirit, when, so when, when he sees sin, when he's sending us, we're not laying into anyone. We're truthful and we're caring. It's one thing to say, you annoy me because you're an alcoholic. If I, if I constantly, some, if I see people, so, I don't know, if I'm constantly in, Sid, in SIDS and I see the same person from our church buying two gallons of liquor every week, I can have two different responses for that. I can go to that person and I can be like, what the heck's your problem? You stinking drunk? Don't you know drunkenness is a sin? The Bible says don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What are you doing? Put that back. Will that help at all? Or maybe I can instead say, hey, you know what? I noticed that you buy like two gallons of liquor every week. What's going on in your life? If you're drinking that, what's going on in your life that, you, that you're suppressing? What, what's hurting you? Why do you have to numb yourself? Because I, I want to help you. There's a better life in Christ and through his spirit than what you're doing. I have no condemnation for the drunk. We shouldn't. Jesus doesn't condemn the believer who's a drunk. He doesn't condemn the drug user. He doesn't condemn the sinner. He says, I came to bring sinners to repentance. He says, I'm a physician and I came for the sick. So the Holy Spirit manifesting through us and through giftings for us will always be to heal the sick, the spiritually sick. It will always be to restore the soul. It will always be to bring fellowship back to God. It's so key in, in this subject of the manifestation of God's gifts in us, the gifts of the Spirit. It's so key that we walk in a way where we're available in holiness to share those gifts. Holiness literally just means to be set aside for what God wants and never our own agenda. He goes on and he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. See, there's, there's no part of selfishness in this, is it? 
If you feel like God's given you the gift of tongues, it's always to be exercised to serve. Or if you feel God's given you the gift of prophecy or teaching or whatever it might be, if you're just a strong person and you help everybody move or whatever it might be, God's gifted you with that to serve others in love. It's interesting. If you wouldn't mind, uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians 1. Because what happens, Corinth is just a fantastic example of what happens when we begin to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in, in selfishness, in, in self-preeminence, meaning I look at myself and, and I'm the most important. What I want is the most important. What I think should happen is the most important. How I'm going to relate to people is the most important. I think it's noteworthy. We read it last week that in John chapter 16, verse 12, remember Jesus looks right at his disciples and he says to them, he says, I have many things to say to you. Remember we read this last week. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But I'm sending my Holy Spirit and he'll bring you into those things later. Let's paraphrase. It's noteworthy that the Lord of the universe, with all the authority and all the power in the entire world, recognized and allowed the, the disciples time. Time to be ready for what he had to say to them. Because he loved them. It's so important that we realize that we are not the fix-all for everything. That people are broken, every one of us broken. And there's just some times that we cannot minister. It's either not the right time, or maybe we're not the right person, or whatever it might be. Remember Jesus, he told us, when he went back to his hometown, when he goes back to Nazareth, what happens? They all look at him, and they go, they estimate that Nazareth is probably about, right around 400 people at the most in Jesus' day. So they all know, I mean, we live in a community of 6,000, right? And everybody knows everybody and everything you ever did. Can you imagine what a community of 400 would be like? And he goes back to Nazareth, and they looked at him, and they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Why is he even talking like that? And they despised him. And the Bible actually says, he was not able to do many miracles there, right? We say, God could do anything, and he can. But he doesn't force it on anyone. So when we're working with people, we have to realize we just may not be the person that can help that person. What happens if you force your will or words on another person who's not ready to have it? Does it bolster the relationship? Does, does everybody go away going, this was really great. I'm glad you talked to me. Or does it alienate and divide and anger? There's something we have to understand about one another. When we're ministering in love and in care, we're careful with the other person. Because our goal is not to get our word of wisdom out. Our goal is not to get our prophecy out as quick as possible. Because God's given it to me and i got to say it right now. Our goal is to see people loved and nourished. And just as Jesus saw in the disciples that at that time, in that place, they could not bear what he had to say to them, and so he sent the Spirit that would later tell them, so also us as we interact, we have to realize that. And when we love people and we're dialoguing with them, not just talking at them, but dialoguing with them, asking them questions, listening to their responses all of a sudden we're going to be able to tell, is this the right time? Can I say this? Is this the time for my gifting? We have to be walking in love and not in any other thing to truly minister to God's people. In 1 Corinthians, we've talked about it in the past, 1 Corinthians 1, this is really a letter of correction, but it's interesting because in verse 4, check it out. Paul says this, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is fascinating because what's going on at Corinth? People are suing each other. There's factions. People are saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Somebody who's really spiritual says, I'm of Jesus. So they're creating factions inside of their church. They're ripping each other off financially and then suing one another with the Roman government. They have a dude who has an open sexual relationship with his stepmother and the leadership's not doing anything about it. They have people that are coming to potlucks, what we would call potlucks, and they're getting completely schnockered on their own wine and then they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. You have people that are doing that very thing, rich people that were coming and they would bring food for the potluck and then they would eat it all themselves and then shame the poor people that they couldn't afford to eat. Does that sound like a church you want to go to? Probably not, right? The good thing is like we have a wide variety. So if someone ticks you off, you just say, yeah, I don't like you, and you go somewhere else. It's a real healthy dynamic we have going for us. But at the end of the day, right here we have one church, the church at Corinth. And then you have some, maybe some home churches around, you know, because they're meeting in homes. And so Paul writes to them, and he says some pretty incredible things. He says, you guys have all the gifts. Did you catch that? You guys have all the gifts. They're so dysfunctional. They're hurting people. They're shaming people. They're suing people. They have all the giftings that they need. An abundance of giftings, evidently. And Paul looks at them with such promise. God will sustain you. God is working in you. God has great things for you. This is a weird way of thinking, isn't it? Like, what do you, wait a minute, Paul. There's a grip of sin there. There's a lot of bad going on there. And Paul's perspective is, the Holy Spirit wants to fix that. And he wants to do great things. So there's two kind of things to take away from this as we progress here. Number one is, you can have a church with all the gifting in the world, and it can be the most destructive church on the block if the motivation isn't the love. The second part is, when we look at one another and we're considering one another, we look at one another through the eyes of Christ. That God wants the best outcome from that person that God loves those people, that he sent his own son to redeem those people, that his Holy Spirit is going to work in those people. And we can either choose to be part of God's plan of looking at dysfunctional people and saying, I know you're important to God. I esteem you as more important than myself. I esteem your feelings more important than my feelings. Just like Jesus to the sufferings of Christ. If you remember We're called to endure the sufferings of Christ. But what were those sufferings? Suffering for the wrong of others. Those are the sufferings of Christ, which is completely countercultural, isn't it? Because our culture screams, you never suffer for yourself. You make those around you suffer. Who might make you suffer? It's do unto others before they do unto you. That's our culture. And Jesus is calling us to a life that's completely different a life of love and care and forbearance, you don't have to live that life. You don't have to live a life of love and care and forbearance. You don't. You don't have to live a life yielded to the Holy Spirit. But we know the end of that, don't we? We know what it is to to harbor hatred and anger and it's soul-zapping. It's so destructive. We know what it is to to wake up angry and to go to bed angry. We know what it is to wake up scared and go to bed scared. We know what it is to walk in the flesh and to reject the promptings of the Spirit. And it's absolutely miserable. It's so destructive. But if we continue to move on to chapter 8 in this letter, so what you have in Corinth, he calls them fleshly, he calls them carnal, and he says, you guys are carnal. You only think about the flesh. You only think about what you want and what you need and so forth. He makes this statement, and I wish we could spend more time in it, but we can't, but he says, now considering food offered to idols. Now, just really briefly, one of the issues in the early church is you had just kind of garden variety pagans getting saved and you had garden variety Jews getting saved. 
and they had different lifestyles, right? Pagans were mostly given to sexual worship practice and given to practice in um, sacrificing meat to idols and so forth to kind of mimic some of the, the meat part, kind of mimic some of the Jewish sacrifices. And the Jews got saved out of being Jews, and they were told it was in the law. It was a big no-no. You never eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so what happens is all these people start getting saved from their different backgrounds, and they come to church. And, and think of it maybe like music in our church, or in, in, just in our, in our church per se, but in our, in our uh, world that we have today. And what I mean by that is the pagans come and they're like, hey, we realized that these idols were nothing. And so they go to the temples after the meat was kind of offered up to the God, and that meat was actually cheaper than getting meat in other places. And so they go to the temple, they buy the meat, they get their French dip or whatever it is they're doing, and it was cheaper to do that. Well, the Jews in the congregation who get saved and they're Christians, they see that and they're like, oh, you can't do that. You cannot buy meat sacrificed to idols. And the, the, the pagans are saying, no, there's the, the idol's nothing. It's no big deal. It's just meat. I'm like, not worshiping. I'm just buying this meat. And the Jews are like, no, the, oh, the law says that you can't buy meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul comes along in multiple books, well, or I should say letters, and tells them like, hey, it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know the idol is nothing and we're not under the law anymore. And he says, but if it stumbles someone, if, if someone can't handle it who's around you, then you don't do it for their conscience sake so that you're not hurting someone else. And I say it's like music for us because like there's, there's some of us that we, we might say, there's no way that that music could ever glorify God. You know, it's got to be Dixieland with words. Or it could be, you know, if it's not from 1986 and a bunch of pastel paint around it, that music can't glorify God. We, you know, the anthem of our salvation is always the era we got saved in. You ever notice that? The meaning, like the songs that you love the most are typically the songs that when you got saved that were playing. Or that music's too hard. Or people get really weird about it. If the beat is on the third and the fourth, and the, I don't even know anything about music, but I've read a few things where it's like, if the beat happens here, it's of Satan. And if it happens here, it's godly. And you're like, what? I feel like if it's saying Satan is great, then it's of Satan. And if it's saying Jesus' way is great, it's of Jesus. And I feel like you could sing that fast or slow, and it's the same. But in our society, there's, there's certain things where we say, no, that could never glorify God. You know, it's funny, our old worship leader, Luke Barnsey, he uh, multiple times went to Russia. And his band was a basically like speed metal punk band. And, and he was our worship leader. He didn't play that here. But in his band, that's what they played. And multiple times they went to Russia with these teams and they would rent strip clubs. And they'd have these huge strip clubs. And they would go to the, the strip club owner and they'd say, hey, what do you make in a night? And he'd say, ah, you know, whatever, in ruples, two grand or whatever it was. And they would rent those strip clubs and they'd say, no women, no booze, and just all, we'll pay for all the soda that you serve. And so these dudes would come in expecting to get booze and ladies, and they see these American dudes. And they start playing this radical punk music. And pretty soon, these, a lot of these guys, they're into it. They're enjoying the music, and then a translator gets up and pre preaches the gospel. And every night, they saw hundreds get saved. And, and, and if we were to come along and go, what's that music? I don't know. You can't really glorify God with that. Apparently, he did. Hundreds of people getting saved because they enjoy that kind of music. Maybe you don't enjoy that kind of music. That's fine. Maybe you enjoy a different music. All I'm saying is that we have to be careful that we don't take things that are opinions and then apply personal offense to them and then pretend like it's the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't work. But he says here, concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And that's a quote from them. And I'm, I'm, I, Forgive me for coming out of context here, but I just want to pull one line out of this. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, what was happening is that each side of the topic were shaming the other side of the topic. And so Paul's writing back to them. He's saying, your knowledge that you have about not eating or eating meat sacrificed to idol, it's made you proud. In other words, you don't actually care about the person who's eating or not eating. You've just become superior in your own mind because you know that you can eat that meat. And he says, your knowledge is puffed up. It destroys. 
He says, but love, love builds up. So it's really important, the gifting and the knowledge, all those things, those are great. But without love, it's, as Paul will say later, it's, a, it's an empty symbol. It's a clanging symbol. symbol. It's, it's dust and ashes. He's going to go on even more. And why am I going through all this? Because this is the context in which Paul lays out what we'll cover next week, all the gifts of the Spirit. The context that Paul lays out, the major portions that we have in Scripture for the gifts of the Spirit are in a dysfunctional church where people are selfish, like all of us, and they're using the gifts selfishly. But what the Holy Spirit wants for us is not to use our giftings selfishly, whether it's to change someone or to be noticed or whatever weird concoction enters our mind, but instead to look at the others and say, I love you with a great love, and I think God has given me a word to share with you. And you can know that that word that God has given will always be reconciliatory? I don't know. It'll always reconcile. It will always bring together. It'll always point to Christ. It will always, it can be convicting all you want, but it'll always be encouraging. It'll never have condemnation. And we need to figure out the Holy Spirit's not going to force his word on anyone, just like Jesus didn't. He's not going to do it. We have to be careful. And we might say to ourselves, dang, this takes a lot of thought. It does. It doesn't take too much thought. It takes care to take a moment and to think, like, is this, is this what God really wants? Is this what he's doing? Is this, is this appropriate? Is this going to bless this person? Rather than just going off half-cocked and, ah, you're welcome for my gift. So he says there, this is chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. This is really important because oftentimes the giftings that we have, we think everybody else should do. And what I mean by that is sometimes if, if you're, say, if you have like a gift of organization, like you're really good at organizing, and, and that's, that is a wonderful gift. You can think to yourself, why isn't everybody else organized like I'm organized? If you're not organizing like I'm organizing, then you're doing it wrong. And maybe they are doing it wrong. But just because you have a certain gift or I have a certain gift, it doesn't mean that everyone else has that gift or should be even doing what your gift is. Or if you have a gift of, of leading people, if you're, if you're a gifted leader, it doesn't mean you despise someone who's not. If you're a gifted leader, there has to be gifted followers or else you just have chaos. So when he breaks, starts breaking it down for us, this is interesting because he says this. He says there are different varieties of gifts. And the word gift there, it means, it's, well, in the Greek, it's charisma. You might have heard that before. And the, the idea there is it's a gift of grace. The idea is that God has shown you favor and given you this ability. And it could be a supernatural ability in which God gives you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. It can be a natural ability in which you're just good at that thing and God uses you in that thing. But it's the same spirit. That's what's so important. The same spirit. So when we see people with different gifts or, or different ways that they're doing things, it's the same spirit. That's why in 1 Peter 4, I like that he says, the King James says, the manifold grace of God, that when we use our gift, we use it according to the manifold grace of God. What that means is one dispersed into many, many avenues that that grace is dispersed. Then he says this. He says there's varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Then he says this. And there are many varieties of service, but the same Lord. And that there is the same word, uh, diaconia, which is where we get our word deacon or servant. That's what it means. That there's, there's different ministries, but the same Lord. So there can be a, a ministry, an outreach to uh, different nationalities. It can be an outreach to the homosexual community. It can be an outreach to whatever community, whatever set. There's just different ministries. So people can, can, can go, oh, why are we doing this when we should be doing this? Because this is what God has called me to do. 
And maybe God's called you to a different ministry. It doesn't mean that one of us is doing the wrong ministry. It means that there's different ministries. It's the same Lord. Interesting, the, the same authority. So the different ministries can allow different authorities. We have no right to roll up on a ministry and say, well, you should be doing this and doing that and doing this. We just don't know. It's not our ministry. I listened to, I went and, uh, years and years ago, I went to a conference, and I'll, I'll never, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget it. There, I, I, I listen to, um, I don't know if you know, some of us might know him, a guy named uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll. And he was sharing a word, and it was, it was called Boars in the Garden. This is from like 20 years ago. I still remember this. And, uh, and the whole point that he was making was that there will be people, because uh, it was supposed to be like a pastor's retreat thing, there will be people that will come to your ministry and they just want to change it. And in trying to change it, they're like boars in the garden. They just dig stuff up and they trample stuff because they have an agenda and that's just what they want to do. And that's true. I'm sure you've noticed it in your own life. God's called you to do something. You're trying to be involved with what God has you to do. Someone comes along and says, well, that's cool but you really should do this instead. And when you're like, oh, I don't know, because God kind of showed me to do this. And they're like, yeah, but that's so inferior to what I think. And you're like, that's cool, I'll just be inferior. I'm fine with that, because I need to continue in what God's called me to do. So don't be a bore in someone else's garden, and don't let people bore your garden. Do what God's called you to do. It doesn't mean be rude. It doesn't mean be be, you know, reject them, but like, hey, this is what God's called me to do, and that's what God's called you to do. You're more than welcome to enjoy it. I was at another retreat one time. A guy who had a, uh, a um, basically a gigantic, like, 2,000-person church, and he was just talking, and he goes, you know, it's kind of like a, I don't know, Q&A session thing. And he goes, you know, he goes, I've kind of gotten to the point he goes, when someone comes up to me and says, hey, you know what, you should do this instead of that in your church. He goes, I listen to them. And then if they say, if I say, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to do that, and they push the issue, he goes, and we couldn't do this, but he goes, I just tell them, I'll tell you what. I'll pay you $3,000 a month for a year. I'll announce that you're starting another church, and you can go start another church. And he goes, no one's ever taken me up on it. Be encouraged. People will always say stuff. They're always going to want to pick your fruit that you've worked for. They're all, they're, they're just, they just will. It's how we roll. But don't get discouraged in your own ministry and what you're doing for the Lord. It's okay. Just keep doing what you're doing for the Lord. Because there's many services, many ministries, but it's the same Lord. Then he goes on and he says this. He says that there's many varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And the idea here, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's energema or energema. It's an effect. There's many effects of God's gifting in people that they achieve in the Holy Spirit. There's many operations that people are moving in. But God empowers every one of them individually. It's the same vein of the same thoughts. Do what God has called you to do and leave people alone if they're doing what God has called them to do. It's a really important concept for us to be interacting with people and to be loving people. Remember, if we were to ever stick our nose in someone's business, it can only be because we love them and we're concerned about them. Any other motivation, it will, it will reap destruction. You can cause pain. You can cause shame, anxiety, anger. It's, there's just no end of destruction that we can cause when we try to... Try, Start trying to interject ourselves into people's lives in ways that are outside of love. Interestingly enough, because he goes on, he's going to do this whole, a whole description. In verse 7, he says, To each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice that every single time these things are brought up, it's use your gift wisely to serve. Use your gift for the common good. Love people. Right? It's, it's always outside. It's always others. It's never use your gifts so that you can feel good about yourself. It is so destructive when we act in our giftings for ourselves. And I'm not, maybe, you're, maybe it's not even like I want glory and I want fame or anything like that. But if we build our lives based on what we think our giftings are, 
What happens if it's gone? Who are we? You see, we are not our giftings. Our identity is not our giftings. Our identity is that we are children of God. Any one of us at any time, we could stroke. We could have a stroke. What if you're a stinking genius and you can describe everything in the scripture and how it works, and then you have a stroke? Are you any less worth? Do you have less worth now? Do you have a different identity now? No, you're still a child of God. You're still loved by God. Your ministry has just changed. Or maybe you become a ministry for someone else so they can learn to minister. What if you're a big, strong person and you help everybody move and you get in an accident and you snap one of your sticks, your legs, a nice green stick fracture of the femur? Are you no longer important in the kingdom of God? Do you have you lessened in value? You see what happens when we begin to make our giftings our identity? Or we begin to make our giftings our importance? When they're, if they're hindered, we become like just bobbing in the ocean. We become fearful. We become angry. When your identity is taken away from you, does it make you angry? It makes you feel like you've been robbed? It makes you feel like, who am I? See, it's, it's always my giftings and your giftings are never to be used to gratify myself. Is it encouraging when God uses you in your giftings? Of course it is. You know, whatever it might be. If you're an incredible organizer and you organize an incredible event and, you know, whatever, God works and moves in that event. Of course it's like, oh, that's so cool. Thank you, God, for letting me be part of that. Rather than, see what I did? You're welcome, God, that I was part of that. So we have to be really careful. We, our giftings are always to be for others. There's other concepts that he's going to reveal here. So he says that, we read verse 7, that he says it's for the common good. So if your gifting is not going to be in the common good in that moment, don't use it. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith, to another the same Spirit, to other gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Another part that leaves us out again. It's so great to be left out of important decisions. I don't know, I love that. I love it when I get, I really do. I'm being serious. It's wonderful to be left out of important decisions. You're just like, cool, sounds good to me. He apportions spiritual gifts as he wills. The Holy Spirit's like really smart. And so when he says this person should do this and this person should do this, we should roll with that because he's really smart. And it's important to remember that God has given you the gifts he's given you for you to use them. If you love doing something and you're good at it and you can use it as a blessing, God gave that to you. Don't despise it. Don't go, oh, I wish I had this gift over here. This gift seems like way more better. I wish I had the gift of organization. I do not. I am terrible at it. All the time I think, oh, man, why couldn't I be an organizer? But I'm just not. I don't know what to t- I apologize for my life, but it's just... It's just the truth of the matter. I try. I, do, I even bought a file cabinet this week. Like, I'm trying to be, I just don't have it. And I do, like, I, I've, I've been, like, involved in other ministries, and I've seen these pastors, and, like, everything's to the T and to its perfect, and I'm just like, oh, man, I am, I am weak sauce. I'll never, you know, I just don't have it. It is what it is. He's going to go on, and we're not going to read this whole section because it's a lot and we're running out of time. But he, he likens the body, the, the churches, the church universally, to a body. And he's making the point that every single person in the body contributes, even people that, we, that might appear to be weaker to us, that they have great purpose. And he says, just like we cover on our bodies, we, we basically, it's kind of funny the way he puts it, basically because we decorate our, our more unseemly portions of our body, right? We all wear pants that are flattering. We all do, you know, he says, just like we do that on our own bodies, so also we're to do that with people in the church, that there's nobody who's worth less in the church than someone else. Are there more public gifts? Sure, but that's not a worth issue. That's just a working out of God's plan issue that he himself created. So that's the, the, in this, that's the kind of the portion from, uh, from uh, uh, 12 on. But we're going to jump back in in verse 27. And he says, 
now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various gifts of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you still more an excellent way. Two things I want to come away with. We'll cover, like I said, we'll cover more of these gifts and the manifestations, the actual what they are later, uh, God willing, next week. But two things I want to point out here. Number one, relating back to a point we already made, these are all rhetorical questions. Does everybody speak in tongues? No, they don't. Is everybody an apostle? Little a? Remember, there are little a apostles. For example, Barnabas in, in Acts 14 says the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't one of the 12, right? But he's still considered an apostle, an apostolic ministry. There are no more capital A apostles, but there are small a apostles, people that are commissioned people, basically. The idea of a person who's commissioned for a mission by God. And so he's saying, are, is everybody apostle? Is everybody here to be sent out to, to plant a church? No. Is everybody here to, to give words of prophecy? No. Is everybody here going to heal someone in their life? No. He's making the point that gifts vary, and we all have a contribution, when he says desire the greater gifts, this is really important because it kind of can stumble people and they go, well, wait a minute. If we're all parts of the body, then what he's saying is desire the gifts that are going to build up in your church. When he's, he's not talking about you individually should not be happy with the gifts God's given you. You should want better gifts. What he's saying is desire that your church, desire the greater gifts that are going to build up your church. Most likely he's talking about apostles, prophets, teachers because he numbers those. But there again, it's just the point is that make sure desire that your church is built up. It's kind of the bottom line of what Paul is talking about there. He's not despising. Because then he says this, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So he just listed all the, the, the gifts, greater, not greater, however you want to classify them. He says, and I have a better way for you. I remember that it was probably uh, more late in my ministry that I'd like to admit, but I remember the day I realized that the big bad love chapter that we all love at our wedding is right smack in the middle of how spiritual gifts work. The better way is love. That's the better way because he lists all the gifts and then he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And he goes on to say, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, that sounds like something you'd want, right? Understand all the mysteries, have all the knowledge in the whole world, have the best faith in the whole world, God can do anything. So as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I want to point out, notice that he doesn't say nobody gains anything. Because guess what? If I'm motivated by legalism and personal satisfaction, and I go out and start feeding the poor, people are going to gain, aren't they? Yeah, they'll get fed. If, I, if, if God reveals things to me and I have... In, in, in prophecy, and I don't have love, it doesn't say nobody will gain from that. You ever wondered why pastors can like sin for decades, have tons of ladies on the side, and then all and, and, and people are blessed by their ministry for years? You ever wonder about that? Because aren't we taught like, well, if you're not walking with Jesus, you just your ministry will come to naught. Well, then why is it guys like Caldwell or Cole? And millions of others have these incredible ministries that bless the socks off of people. And then you come to find out that they're ripping people off and having a bunch of sex. Because God's word is incredibly powerful. And even if I don't have love, he doesn't say it will profit nobody. He says it will profit me nothing. Now we can do destruction as those guys have and as we all have when we've acted outside of love. But we can't be making rules of how it works and doesn't work. It will profit me nothing. And then he's going to go on, and we'll, start, we'll end with this. He says, love is patient. So how is the Holy Spirit going to work? He's going to work patiently. What's patience? It's endurance. 
with stuff that you have to endure. What, what, what do you have to endure? You don't have to endure pleasure. Nobody endures watching their favorite movie. Nobody endures their favorite meal. It's like, oh, steak again. You endure things that are terrible and uncomfortable. Love endures. It endures. It's kind. When it's enduring, it's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Do you want to know if you love someone? How do you react in your heart when something good happens to them? Do you think to yourself, oh, what a pain. That means X for me. Or do you go, that's awesome. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It doesn't mean that love is naive. It believes that all things are possible. So it looks at a person who's an absolute wreck and says, God can fix you. He can change you. He goes on and says there, it hopes all things and endures all things. It never ends. Now check this out. One more minute, I promise. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. See, all the gifts are going away someday. They're all going away. And it's interesting because in this allegory, in this metaphor, the child is us exercising the gifts. And the mature is when Christ returns and the gifts are gone. And in the end, there will be no more, or it will, the, the greatest faith and hope will be accomplished. I won't have hope anymore because I'll be with Jesus. I'll be experiencing the hope I've been waiting for. I won't necessarily have the same type of faith anymore because what I had always trusted in is there. I'm now with my Lord permanently. But love doesn't change. It continues on into eternity. So the gifts are great, but they're a tool for a time. But the important is the love, the care, the compassion, the building for one another. So this week, in all that we do and all that we think about, as we pursue the Lord, as we forget and don't pursue the Lord, as we repent and then pursue the Lord again, as we're rude to people and then we repent and we're not rude to people, as we just interact with one another, remember, look upon them. And say to them, or at least to yourself, you don't want to be weird, I want the absolute best for this person. This person ripped me off my change, I want the best for you. This person cut in front of me in line, I want the best for you, man. And I know, ultimately, that the life that you're living that wants to dominate and cut people off, it will destroy you. And I don't, we don't say that in pompousness. We just know that will destroy you. And I don't want that for you. Because Christ has so much more. Someone treats you poorly, treats you absolutely despicably, you can say, that hurt me, but that will destroy you. And I want the best for you. I'm not going to get in an argument with you. I'm not going to scream at you back. I'm not going to rage. Vengeance is the Lord, is the Lord's, and I want to love you. People spin weird conspiracies or they're on the opposite side of the mask debate. I want the best for you. The absolute best for you. I want you to know Christ. That's our goal. So next week as we kind of get into the, the, the gifts and how different people look at them and how different churches and so forth express them, it's with this background in mind, who the Holy Spirit is, what he's doing, and how he will manifest the gifts through us and the motivation that has to come with it. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the heart of our God who loves us, has great things for us. Lord, help us just to embrace one another's different ministries, to embrace the fact that your spirit is working and doing great things. Lord, we want to be a blessing to one another. Lord, I pray, please convict us. And when we're not uh, agape loving someone, when we're not morally desiring the best for someone, would you please convict our hearts? 
Lord, before we say something stupid or bad, Lord, would you please convict our hearts before we go away, I don't know, in a bad spot? Lord, would you please help us to love those who have wronged us and help us to love those who continue to wrong us and, and not to accept the wrong, but to forgive the wrong, the person who did it. Lord, this is supernatural. It is the fruit of your spirit. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister that in our hearts and that we would repent when we see our own fruit in our hearts. And we just commit ourselves to you this week and pray for cool, miraculous, great things for your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.